this week on Dig Me Out. Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. It's happening. This is number 500. We're doing this party line style. <laughs> if you have, if you're around when there was the party lines, people will call in and chat and be like, "Hey, Chad, what's up?" This, this is happening. so. Uh, n- no Butch Vig coming in to smooth it all out. No, <laughs> unfortunately not. You know not what, returning though? our calls. No, and and we thought about a lot of different options for this episode of what we could do. We we banged around different ideas, interviews, and we were like, the best thing about this show is the community that it's built over the last 500 episodes, and how many interesting people we've met from it, doing interviews with our our fellow music fans and bloggers and podcasters and people on Patreon, and so it seemed like the right move to just invite everybody back who wanted to come back and shoot the shit with us and talk about a record they may have heard yeah you know this one is kind of well well known this might be the most talked about album of the 90s after the you know the um in the airplane over the sea by Nutrimilk hotel that seems to get a lot of publicity but yeah we figured uh what would be the point of us just gabbing about it? We wanted to get lots of perspectives, so we threw it out there. We said, hey, everybody, you're welcome to come on and, and talk with us and share some stories. I don't think we need to do a history of the band. By the way, <laughs> I didn't even mention it. The album that our patrons commu- uh, uh, selected for this was from 10 picks that we put up, or, t- or 10 uh, albums that sold the most. In the 90s, which were all, we didn't include like hip hop and and pop music. We only include stuff that was categorized as rock. So that would be Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, Metallica's Metallica, Santana's Supernatural. I'm bummed that we didn't get to that one. <laughs> Creed's Human Clay, Green Day's Dookie, Hootie and the Blowfish, Cracked, Review, Cracked Rear View. I thought we were going to get to that one. We didn't. It was the second place vote getter. No Doubt's Tragic Kingdom, Matchbox 20's Yourself or Someone Like You, and Kid Rock's Devil Without a Cause. That was threatened repeatedly that was going to be the, the one. But we ended up with <laughs> Nirvana's Nevermind, which of course came out in uh, September of 1991. September 24th, actually, of 1991. Produced by Butch Vig. It was on DGC. Yada, yada, yada. Everybody knows all the minutiae of this record. There's nothing that we're going to cover that in that history that's going to be new to anybody. It's been written about. There's books. There's long-form essays. There's, you know, medium articles, whatever. You're not going to get anything new. But I think going back and actually listening to the record and then, and then talking about the actual music as opposed to the legacy that it's built and built around it is probably the more interesting thing at this point because it's such a iconic pop culture piece that you almost forget that it's actually an album with songs that aren't singles and has there's more going on there right so 
Jay, let me ask you, do you actually own this record? I don't. I own the second record. Um, Wait. Sorry, sorry, the third record. You own In Utero. (laughs) Yeah, In Utero. I was like the type of person that if a record was really, really big, I mean, this is, you know, going back, I had no money, right? So you're like, hmm, what am I going to spend my money on? I would not buy things that were played on the radio a lot because I was just like, well, that's a waste of money. I can just listen to that stuff on the radio or MTV. So the big, big, big records I don't tend to have. I tend to have the second record or the third record of a band. Um, But certainly I know, I think I probably dubbed the cassette off of a CD or something at the time. Um, But I spent a lot of time listening to it. I just don't believe I own it. I didn't get it until years later because I was in the same boat. It It was on the radio. So let me ask the folks that have joined us. Who here actually bought it when it came out? Like you were there on September whatever at the record store on a Tuesday ready to pop this thing off the shelf and lay it down on the on the counter to purchase it. Who did it? I did. You there did? There you go. Uh yeah, I heard I heard it on call, uh Buff State Radio like before nice. it came out. Um and and uh your bread's ready. <laughs> I'm getting texts. Uh, let me shut this up. But uh, and then I went to the record store, not knowing that it wasn't out, and I and I asked for it, and it was like the day that it came out, and they were like putting it on the shelves. So, but if I, you were at Buff State, did you go to record theater to get it, or one of the um, local? I was at the McKinley Mall actually. So oh, coconuts. It, it was at like Cabbages. Oh, okay. <laughs> Camelot. Camelot. Yeah, exactly. Did I got anybody. I was I, just going to say. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, I was going to say. Um, I don't think I bought it the day it came out. I bought it at um, Magnolia Thunder Pussy, great record store in Columbus. Yes. That unless you're from Columbus, you don't know. Um, but uh, my Columbus friends here know. Um, you guys know Artie Arturo, right? Yes. So he was working the counter, and uh, he used to write little postcards, uh, little index cards, and he'd write something about the bands and put it up. Um, and it said something like, if you like Mud Honey and Alice in Chains, this is the band for you. Um, I did not like Mud Honey, but I liked Alice in Chains. So I remember him like, you know, he's like, this is going to, this is going to change your life. And I, and I bought it. And um, yeah, like watching Ed, uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, it changed my life. Now, did you go to the legendary show at Nirvana at Stashes? I did, in fact. Where they played to like 300 people, but 3,000 people claimed to have gone to that show. Yeah. And so um, there's a uh, famous, infamous columbus photographer from back in the day named jay brown who um black and white photographer um Mm -hmm. maybe he's not that famous but uh his pictures show up everywhere um especially from that show um it's it's ended up in some of the the um some of the releases that have come out it was in the 25th anniversary expanded edition and um i believe in the picture you can see a lot of people that were in columbus bands or yeah. I think Kyle Segrist, who owns yep. Lost Weekend Records, is in the picture and likes to point that out whenever I go and visit him. So that's the problem. There's all these pictures, and I'm not in a single one, but I was there. I reviewed it, so I have the review uh, from The Lantern for the show. But um, the, the little story about that show is it was sold out. I mean, it was, it was a tough ticket to get, and... Um, we knew the photographer for the lantern knew the guy that owned stashes and called and like you know i was a i was a a young reporter at the time so i didn't know you could do this kind of stuff and he called and he got us in and we thought like the photographer was like god because he got us into this sold out show 
I was not 21. And I remember we went up to the door and our names were not on the list. And so we were kind of bummed out and we're like, no, but our friend called the owner who said we were on the list. And the, I remember the guy took our IDs and said, um, I'm going to keep your licenses here tonight. Come get them at the end of the night. And if you're not on the list, then you'll have to give me the 10 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever it is. But he let us go in and he stamped me high, which was awesome because I was not 21. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like I said, it was like watching the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. It, it, uh, Tim and Jay may know this story. Um, I saw Brett Michaels that same week at the Newport Music Hall play in front of about 300 people. And I was there to see him. I mean, you know, hair metal fan. And um, I went from loving hair metal to loving grunge and forgetting about hair metal for 10 years because of that show. Like it, it literally changed my life. Excellent. That's an excellent antidote. Thank you. Who would like to follow that with their story of Nirvana? Jim? Mr. Anki? Uh, um, I don't, man, I don't really have one from, uh, you know, exactly when the record came out. I mean, I remember, I will say just from a music standpoint, and we've talked about this, I think, about other records we've talked about, um, uh, you know, maybe some Pearl Jam stuff or, or whatever, but... Uh, I don't know how everybody else feels, but like FM rock radio ruined this record for me for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, teen spirit and lithium and come as you are or whatever, like super, I don't know. It just, you know, that's all they knew how to, that's all they played, you know, like, except for heart shape box occasionally or all apologies or something from unplugged later on. But, the back half of this record is still so good to me um, on a plane and drain you and um, like on a plane specifically uh, it has this weird thing about it where um, you know, the, 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 the curtain Dave harmonies on um, love myself better than you or what, you know, whatever the line is, it constantly to me has always felt like they're hitting this. Like logically I know they're hitting the same note, but each time I hear it, I think it's like, even more pushed or even higher or whatever. And it's just like, I love that part of it. Um, uh, what I was going to share was uh, uh, on, on uh, my show, I had Robert Fisher on recently, who is the, yes. the, the visual artist for, uh, I mean, basically in layman's terms, Nirvana's art director from Nevermind onward. Um, he was working at Geffen and DGC at the time, got assigned this little band called Nirvana that nobody wanted to work with. And, and basically became the only person Kurt Cobain trusted with their image um, from, a, from a record standpoint. Obviously, he worked with many photographers and video directors over the years. But, you know, the way Robert tells it, um, he had always, like, very, very minimal notes from Kurt. Like, usually Robert brought him something, and Kurt just approved it right away, which is, which is really interesting to me, considering how important uh, we know, you know, Kurt Cobain wanted to control the the image of Nirvana, and rightfully so. Um, you know, the Nevermind cover, uh, the band originally, I guess, wanted to do Babies Being Born Underwater. Uh, that wasn't going to fly with uh, the label. Um, so they settled for Baby, you know, Baby Underwater. And the the hook with the dollar bill was literally just an afterthought. Like, he, Robert says the band was goofing around like, oh, what if he was chasing, it could have been anything. He said, what if it was like a donut, like Weird Al, funny enough, like on, on the cover of Off the Deep End from Weird <laughs> Al. Uh, but they were just kind of saying stuff or whatever. And 
they just settled on a dollar bill. And, like, literally <laughs> talking to him about that, it sounds like the most off-the-cuff, like, we didn't think about it kind of thing. Um, they didn't, you know, and you look at that cover now and you're like, oh, they're trying, you know, they're saying, like, innocence is sold to the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, he just says it like, yeah, I mean, we just picked a dollar bill and that was it. Like, there's no forethought into what this cover means or anything like that. But um, I just want to push people towards his Instagram, which he put up recently, probably within the last year. It's at Nirvana Bucket. And it is literally a dump place for everything he ever worked on in, in the band. There's notes like written from the band on stuff. Uh, it is a true awesome deep dive for any Nirvana fan to find old stuff. Um, I mean, he just found a boatload of like promo stickers from Nevermind. And like the back of the promo sticker is like CD5 out now. On, you know, it's just like the, the weirdest, most 90s stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an amazing follow. And he's on a couple episodes ago, a vinyl emergency, if people want to hear it. Well, I don't know if you know this or not, but the last episode we did, we covered a record that he did the artwork for, which mm. was Murray Attaway's Enthrall. <laughs> You're right. I saw I saw your Instagram post on that. I was like, oh man, I didn't know he did that one too. I mean, he's done, he did so many for DGC. It's crazy. If people go look through their record collections, it wasn't everything. Like he didn't do Counting Crows. He didn't do, you know, some other ones, but mm-hmm. um, his, his it's, it, or go on Discogs or something and just search for Robert Fisher and it's a crazy amount of stuff. Beck, no doubt. Weezer, yep. uh, it's insane. So we were trying to figure out because all those that you've mentioned have really iconic covers or or fonts, and, and you know it's really ties in with the music. You like you, you it makes sense. Murray Attaway's Enthrall looks like the cover of a Merciful Merciful Fate album, but the guy is singing like Jangle Pop Power Pop. Like it doesn't make. <laughs> any sense and we were like yeah. we got it and then it just happened that you had just interviewed him so we were hoping you had talked about it but our theory yeah. is he had some sketches left over from the slayer work and maybe just put a new name on it yeah because he be. made a slayer record it made it looks like a slayer record could be yeah. i mean that's how one of my bands got our artwork what literally the kiduma mountains full length loomings some band you know the artist friend that i knew who drew it some band didn't want it and i said we'll take it because <laughs> it looked really cool nice, nice. I see we've had some additional folks join us. Wit, Johnny Hooper, welcome to the chat. If anybody else would like to uh, chime in with their discovery or or when you picked up, never mind, uh, feel free to, to share your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everybody. Yeah. I've got a pretty good story about Nirvana. Yes. So, okay, um, this is Eric. Some of you may have heard me talk before about growing up in Ann Arbor, Michigan which uh, apparently was a favorite place for a lot of those Seattle bands to play when I was in high school. Not that I was paying attention, but Soundgarden played here in like 89. Nirvana played here in 90. Uh, So definitely was uh, on the map for a place that these bands would tour through and play and that kids in my high school would go see them. I was completely oblivious. I was too busy listening to Queensryche or King's X or something like that at the time. (laughs) So uh, I go off to college in August of 1991 to uh, Lake Superior State University, which is like the Canadian border, the farthest north you can go just about in Michigan and cross the border. And uh, everybody there is listening to Guns N' Roses and uh, Two Live Crew and Motley Crew and uh, 
the new then Metallica album, which I would argue actually really started the ball rolling away from hair metal into alternative, but that's a totally different episode. Mm. And so we were very much insulated from what was going on in the world. Sure, we watched a little MTV in the dorm or read Rip Magazine or listened to the classic rock radio station there on the border, but there was not a lot of uh, new stuff necessarily being picked up right then. So I came home at Christmas time and all anybody could talk about was Nirvana and Pearl Jam. We all knew Alice in Chains already because we all watched Headbangers Ball in high school constantly. And then Soundgarden was the other one. So for me, Nirvana was one I never really clicked with, but they were my brother's favorite band. So I heard it constantly. My brother's about two and a half years younger than me. And he was the one that that really clicked with Nirvana and the, that album. And he's also the one that was into like the Sex Pistols and the Dead Kennedys, where I was more into the kind of weirder, like third tier punk bands. So for me, it was something that I had to first of all get past that it's my little brother's, you know, album or band and really then get away from the hype and uh, just everything that was going on with all the Seattle bands because quite frankly, Pearl Jam spoke to me more, Screaming Trees spoke to me more, Mother Love Bone, uh, Temple of the Dog, Green River, all of those things I was more into than Nirvana. But as somebody said earlier, listening to the back half of this record more recently, it's like, wow, I, you know, we all know the singles. And quite frankly, maybe aside from Bastards of Young by The Replacements, uh, you know, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit is the identifier for Generation X. I mean, so much of what's being said there was just repeating everyday things I heard, like trying to talk to adults and them ignoring you and then finally saying, what did you say? And you go, never mind, and just move along. So for me, this, this album is kind of strange to listen to because I forget how poppy it is and I forget how it's, uh, it's so much more accessible maybe than, than we remember. And it's, uh, you know, come, like I said, coming from that background of this was my brother's thing, you know, and uh, the other thing spoke to me more that it's it's sometimes hard to listen to it, but I'm glad that uh, that doing things like this got me to go back and, and take another listen. Excellent. Yeah, that was the same. That was the same for me. But this is not a record that I felt like I needed to go back to and revisit, but this made me do that and second half of the record I, I feel the same way i'd forgotten about all that material and just because i hadn't been played so much it just sounded fresh again that's good I, album i'd go on record there, and say i'd i'd say that it's it's probably the strongest back half of a record that i might i may have ever heard uh and running i was running and listening to it today and just like when lounge jack came on i was like oh my god i forgot about lounge jack and the bass line is just so cool and it doesn't even really sound like them. It's sort of like a, almost like a weird, you know, uh, left turn from kind of the more like aggressive stuff on the record. And I don't know, um, it's just, it's super strong. But I was just gonna say that, so when I, um, this is Ryan, by the way, um, <laughs> when, when Nirvana's Nevermind came out, I was 11, um, which is crazy because now I have a nine-year-old. And so to think like 
something that happened when I was 11, like impacted me so much, like to this day, it's still like lives with me is, is really crazy to think. Like, I don't know. It's just weird how time goes by, but, um, Nirvana scared the shit out of me when I was 11 years old. Like I was certainly, you know, uh, enamored with hair metal, you know, uh, a few years before that, and then kind of getting, got into rap or whatever, like radio rap. And then, you know, fast forward to sixth grade and, and you hear this like screaming out of the, the, you know, car radio or, you know, flipping through MTV. And you're like, who is this like blonde dude, like screaming, singing, uh, you know, what's happening with these cheerleaders and this video with the anarchy symbol and like the hairy armpits and, you know, like it's like dark and, you know, it just it seemed like uh, super dangerous. And like, as an 11 year old, like, I mean, I was not the kid who was like lighting firecrackers and like going down the slide head first. Like I was like a very rule following, you know, um, like play it safe as possible kid. I never rode a roller coaster. Like I was just like, not my vibe. So this kind of hit me out of nowhere and like, I think somebody else said it earlier, but like I was, I was kind of more drawn to Pearl Jam. Like it was it kind of seemed like something I could play, you know, like throw the cassette in in my parents' car and they wouldn't like immediately want to turn it off, you know, cause it was sort of seemed like it was more song based or something like that. And so it took me a couple of years really. Like I remember standing in like the lunch line in the sixth grade and like turning to my friends and being like, have you heard this song smells like teen spirit? It's, it's crazy, you know? And like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, like what? I don't understand. It just, it like, didn't, I just never heard anything like it before. You know, like I don't have an older sibling or whatever who was playing the Ramones or whatever. So like, mm -hmm. um, it was terrifying and it took me a while uh, to come around to it. And now, you know, you hear it and it's just like so ingrained um, in my, in my, like very being as a musician it's it's like you know a reference point for everything that i do whether i'm conscious of it or not um and and i think that part of why it's so um it's so it, it drew me in so much is that it was scary at the beginning you know and i didn't understand it and it took me a little bit of time to like really unpack it that's an interesting point because i think my first exposure and i'm sure a lot of people have this as well was the video it wasn't that i heard it on the radio because i don't know I, I didn't have a car that i was driving around in all that much i was but i was sitting at home watching mtv after school every day and watching that video was just like what the hell is going on and this is completely unlike anything that's happening especially because the week before is when use your illusion one and two come out which I'm pretty sure we're like dominating everything at that point. So that, and it, what's funny is that Guns N' Roses seemed scary when they started in 87 or 89 or whenever, when it's 87 is when Appetite came out. You were like, these people will, will probably commit murder at some point. Like they're terrifying. And then Nirvana happens and it's like, it is scary, but like on a different level where you're like, these people are like they don't care about anything like his sweater's all tattered and his hair's all messy 
Like, I, was just, it was just, I was a good Samaritan His boy. disrespect for hygiene is just terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he do laundry? Couldn't see his face. I remember, what's interesting is that I remember being viscerally horrified by the video for Jeremy when I was very young, which was in heavy rotation on MTV uh, when I was a kid. And um, uh, never mind, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, nothing from that affected me in that way. It, it didn't feel as threatening. And granted, there wasn't like a classroom full of kids and, and blood spattered um, white shirts. But I, I do think that like it made a difference because um, I sort of came of age with post grunge where you're sensing the effects of the earthquake that Nirvana caused through the aftershocks. Like everything had already been sort of um, paved over and um, sweetened and you had bands like Eve Six or um, Creed and that sort of thing where everything that they did that was so provocative and so I think distinctly threatening to a preteen or, or a young teenager, like I, 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 I was on the already on the other end of the, the curve by the time, you know, I was becoming aware of things that could culturally be defined as um, provocative. Gotcha. Do I see Gavin Reed from Australia? Has he joined us? Oh, did you make it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Friday. Tell me about Friday. How's Friday going? I don't want to know. Uh, well, I'm, ha I'm halfway through my uh, working day. So, uh, yeah, lucky I'm working from home because I'm on a meeting with them as well at the same time. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Love it. That's the way to do um, it. Yeah. I think this podcast gets edited. It's not. I'm not doing it after work. Uh, <laughs> is it is it Google Hangouts in the front, Zoom in the back? Exactly. It's Microsoft uh, uh, Microsoft uh, Teams in front. Got Teams <laughs> in the back. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Um, from listening to everybody here, I'm going to suggest I'm probably two or three years older than most because hey, I'm driving around. Um, and yeah, it's it's so this kind of again knocked hair metal off the frame for me. But um, you know, I was to a degree, you know, an adult, so it wasn't scary. It was just, I don't know, it was almost like we'd been waiting for it. Like, like it landed and we're like, yes, that, that's exactly what I've been listening for. Like, like what I wanted to hear. The weird fact of, of, that I've got with this album is that somewhere in the couple of months after owning it, I came across a lyric sheet for it. Um, and a friend of mine and I sat down and we went through the whole album and wrote down what we thought the lyrics were. And then we compared them to what the lyrics actually were. And we were a fair way off. So. <laughs> that's an interesting exercise. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I would never have guessed um, any of the lyrics. I still listen when I hear it on the radio. Like when something comes on, I'll sometimes I'll leave it on, especially if my daughter's in the car because I just want to see how she reacts to it because she mostly listens to pop music. And how does she react? Uh, <laughs> she she kind of doesn't care as long as it's not too loud. Like I was playing, I had um. Van Halen's A Different Kind of Truth blasting uh, on over the weekend. And there's the beginning of the one song. What is it, Why? Jay? Is it? <laughs> waiting for that. We'll, we'll get into that. Uh, I, <laughs> one of the songs starts with like these harmonics. Is it like Bullet Head or, or Chinatown? One of those. Jay probably knows. Um, but she was like, is it, is it broken? <laughs> like, 
no, that's very difficult what he's doing. It's very, <laughs> it's very important what he's doing right there. Broken. <laughs> she, she asked if Alexa was broken, which now that I said <laughs> said that name, it's going to set off a chain of, of events here. Um, hey, Tim. Yeah. Hey. Is similar to... Hi, how you doing? Hey, I didn't know if my I didn't know if my mic worked even. Okay, so first off, confession: I was 25 when the record came out. So oh, I think I'm the oh. oldest. You tell by <laughs> the gray winner. hair, right? <laughs> um, but is it the same thing you were talking about with your daughter, where you mentioned it at one point? You had a quote that I really liked that you said, "Everything's noise to younger people because it's not just something percussive and a vocal." Is that kind of what she meant by it's broken or something? Yeah, yeah. It just that. Like electric guitars sound like shh, right. like <laughs> right, right. they just sound like white noise because yeah. everything is is beep boop beep boop. Like it sounds well, like was... it sounds like a computer or a robot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was listening to the MP3s of this on AirPods earlier today, and I was like, oh, this did not survive the transition well. I mean, I really wanted to go like dig out the stereo that my wife made me put in boxes in the closet and like put in the CD and listen to it as it was meant to, but I, I felt like uh, some people were saying it was more, uh, it wasn't as, a, as abrasive as they remembered it. And because I was listening to it that way, it felt far more abrasive than I remember. Mm. Interesting. The hooks were there, the hooks were there, but the sound quality was just like, oh, it was just, it graded. It did, yeah. I don't think it survived the transition. Interesting. I found that in, the thing that was interesting was knowing their evolution as a band was how much of the stuff on the back end really reminded me of Bleach in terms of just being high energy and and having the connection to the earlier aspect of the band but realizing that they realized that they needed to like slow down and that's where their singles came from which I don't necessarily think of the 90s as being driven by slower songs but if you think about it like come as you are or or lithium or in bloom those are all like mid-tempo to, to slower tempos and the only thing i could compare it to was like you know alive by pearl jam is kind of a slow tempo for most of that song and then it kicks in at certain points but it what do you say okay boomer what are you doing hologram <laughs> in the chat I, I don't think that navel gazing as like a, a subject of, of songwriting is bulged anymore as you know when Nirvana was in its heyday I think that music serves to uh, be background music for partying or to studying or to it, it's it's much less of an act process um, generation Z than it is for millennials or gen X and, you know, I wonder if that's something that you could, you know, quantitatively evaluate in like the BPMs of songs over the years and, and what charted and what didn't. Hmm. I got some time yeah. on my hand. I could I could break that down. I could. Uh... You're making me want to like. We've all got a lot of time on our hands now. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly. yeah, it's, make, it's making me want to like when I was, you know, 12, I would just sit down all afternoon and just lay, lay in my bed and listen to music. Like, do nothing else. Didn't read, didn't draw nothing. Just sat there and listened to music. Like, how often do we do that anymore? And album covers and liner notes, probably. How often yeah. does anybody do that anymore? I mean, I, right. I don't I don't think it happens. Uh, make music the experience is something that I had to 
I've, I've thrown her under the bus already once tonight. I love her to death, but th my wife doesn't understand the idea of making music experience. That's fine. It's just her way. But I don't yep. think, I think very mu far fewer people of the current younger generation do that. And that's not to cast aspersions. That's not to be like, in my day, get off my lawn. But I just think it's, it's something that doesn't happen as much. And I also think a lot of it is just simply not their fault when you think that they were, they came of age in a, a technological milieu where, you know, your options are to stream or to stream. They, you don't hand them records or CDs or cassettes or whatever it is. And, you know, even like in the mid 2000s where Napster and Kazaa and, you know, like these private trackers for downloading torrents were a thing, there was at least some concerted investment of energy in searching and discovery. And because there was effort put into unearthing something, you were more motivated to find value in the reward. You know, I remember also like, you know, kids don't, you know, when they turn 16 and get their, their learner's permit, they don't drive around with, with a, a hard 6CD limit on what they can listen to in the car. <laughs> so, you know, forcing someone, forcing a child to sit with something until they can derive some kind of value from it, however grudgingly it may be, that that's not a, a process that they have been instructed in because their options are, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, skip, rewind, repeat, and the, like. yeah, the horizon is <laughs> limitless. Yeah, I, I also think that there's uh, an intentionality to this because you go back and you watch that Pearl Jam 20 documentary, I think it's Perry Farrell who talks about about 1996 is when all the labels decided we don't want any more of these weirdo bands. They're going to die on us after we invest all this money in them. So we need our hit for the quarter because the boss needs a new jet ski or whatever. So Spice Girls and NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and whatever LFO, whatever cute kids we could throw <laughs> up there and then let them just float away. And that over time, that builds to the um, the music landscape we have today. Now, if you go back and you watch on YouTube, some of those videos that are like hits of 1993 or 1989, one of the things you'll note is, hey, there's some dance stuff in here. There's some pop music in here. There's some hard rock. There's some ballads. There's some aging, you know, aging 60s rockers. There's, you know, up and coming alternative acts. But if you watch those same videos for like 2005, it's all pop and some rap. Yeah. And that's very it. pop. And I think a lot of that is the labels. Uh, my number one nemesis in the world, Clear Channel. And, <laughs> um, you know, the, the business that really focused on controlling the uh, the airwaves. And, you know, uh, I don't know how many of you know the compilation series Fistful of Rock and Roll from the end of the 90s. That whole thing was about fighting the anti-rock and roll conspiracy. And if you look back, you can see that rock and roll kind of gets pushed out and that some of those messages of the bands like Nirvana were talking about, because that's the other thing we don't talk about is lyrically, when you can decipher what they're talking about, they're not talking about going to parties and having a good time and driving fast cars or any of that stuff that we just had eight years of, they're talking about depression and drug abuse. And uh, they're talking about parents who are disconnected. They're talking about boredom. They're talking about, you know, 
friends and uh, relatives who are being put into mental institutions so parents don't have to deal with them. All of those things were very real and they weren't what Poison or Warrant or Motley Crue were singing about. And, and I don't hear those topics coming up in today's pop music. And here's the amazing thing. So Taylor Swift just put out a new record. What and that was in, and that went to number one for the week. How many records did that sell in its first week that made it go to number 800,000. Okay, Nirvana wow. at its peak we're selling 300,000 100 Yeah, and in utero debuted at number 1 with only 180,000. So it's crazy cuz this album sold 30 has sold 30 million worldwide. Worldwide, yep. Which I'd be curious to know an artist in the 2000s that's combined all their album sales if they've reached 30 million uh, I maybe two no one Adele oh yeah and, you're, and you have I... to reach into pop for it yeah oh you, you wouldn't find a you wouldn't find a rock band from two from the 2000s that hit the 30 million mark not without like releasing 10 albums that sold two million two and a half million each and that's Phil Fleming joining us, who was <laughs> yes, just on back-to-back -back episodes. No, that's all right. I just want to make sure I, I get everybody introduced when they... What I yes. would be really curious to know is that if there's any artist currently who could do the 2010s, now 2020s equivalent of cranking out, you know, ideal world, no coronavirus, right? The equivalent of Oasis at Nebworth. Quarter of a million people. can do that. Uh... Good question. It'd have to be like a. Like I don't even know that Taylor can do it. I don't even know that there is a there is a every, connection every to live music. Time Trump gives the speech. Aren't there a quarter of a million people there? That's what they, Come on that's now. What they told me. I've got a fold who is obsessed with One Direction, and I bet a reunion tour with One Direction might do yeah, something like that. You might be right. <laughs> or. or uh, whatever the korean pop band okay. um bts yeah. it'd have to be some kind of festival combo ticket kind of thing it, at least dual yeah that's the only way that's the only way and everyone does 20 minutes because that's all of their fans attention span can take <laughs> in my opinion so you're right on scott it was you that mentioned about the production on this record and I have to say, having just done In Utero not too long ago, in comparison, this is a really glossy record that is striking in, in how clean it is. Even though it's loud, even though it is, it has their Nirvana touchstones, um, I was also shocked at how much production there is in the record in terms of Kurt using a lot of different effects on his guitar and there's a lot of effects on the bass stuff. And it, it struck me as this is, I didn't expect it to be as much of a production record from that perspective. And it, it kind of definitely tags it a little bit in terms of it being a nineties album. You can also, I mean, you can hear the influence of like the pixies on it with some of the guitar stuff. And I mean that's an obvious influence, um, but 
I, I wasn't expecting like the flange to show up when it does in certain songs on the guitar and the the weird tremolo guitar stuff that it shows up every once in a while. Um, did that did that stand out to anybody else in terms of just listening back and going, huh, that's that was kind of weird. I didn't remember that being there, but um, it was a lot of the stuff on the guitar and the bass. Phil, why are you on here twice? Why are you why are you in here three times? I thought you were already here. <laughs> How many times I, did you join? The joining? thing that stood out to me from a production from a production standpoint was the vocals. Like I thought a lot of times it seemed like a lot of time or at least a lot of um, focus was put on like how to layer his voice, um, when to double it, when to do harmonies, how to do them, how to make the choruses sound like choruses with either backups, like other parts or harmony parts, which at the time, like my, I hadn't listened to that much music yet. And at that time in my life, I didn't know half the time what I was hearing. It was just like, Oh, this sounds good. or doesn't. But now, you know, whatever, 30 years later, I can pull things apart better. So I was kind of surprised by how much production there was vocally on this, um, which I think works really well. I think it w- it's what makes some of the hooks really pop. But mm-hmm. that was one of the things that really stood out to me. That and, and the drums. I mean, I, I contest that this pan pro- band probably isn't as big as they are without Dave Grohl. Like, if they don't find Dave Grohl, like, this sound, the thick simple three-piece sound doesn't work if you don't have a really good drummer well, amazing drummer um yeah it's really really I, I i completely agree that the the drums are are still awesome they've even made the transition i think what i was reacting to more with like this is abrasive this is not gelling with me was the guitar tone more than anything there's a ton of upper mids um that really come through on airpods and and iphone and like territorial pissings and breed, they start off just super aggressive. But, um, but you and see, they, those those clip in the original mix. So when it goes to MP3, you're you're compressing clipping sounds. All right, I'm hearing myself somewhere. <laughs> I'm I'm nodding very loudly for those who aren't watching the video. <laughs> I'm just so yeah. grateful to hear like open unaffected praise for Dave Grohl because I feel like the chic thing these days is to to rag on him as as a sort of rock and roll godfather figure and also as a drummer you know I've like a lot of people I've spoken to, oh you know he just he just hits the drums really hard I'm like so even if that was all he did isn't that just like awesome there's some, there some fills in here that are hooks like the fills in the intro part to in bloom it's like Mm-hmm. That's a hook. Like you remember well, that the, part. You remember how that's played. That's as that's yeah. as important as the, the chorus. The chorus is to Teen Spirit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and that's no, you're right. that kind of slappy snare thing. Like so many drummers do that, and it sounds terrible. But yeah. like when he does it, like he does it with such precision and groove and force. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds good. It like fills in all the space, and it sounds kind of chaotic but big and. You have to know what you're doing to do that. Like, yeah. that's perfect. Ex- perfect example is uh, what's it, it's not. Never mind. In utero, the second or first or second song where he just leads in with that really heavy. I don't know the name of the Scentless song. Apprentice. Really trying to think of it. Yes. That's it. That's the one. That yep. is. That's amazing. I love that so much. Yeah. He's probably um, written yeah, some uh, of the key um, drum parts of the entire decade between 
Scentless Apprentice, and obviously, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit, but also My Hero. I mean, that is mm-hmm. a really amazing drum part that he's well, playing he for that song. he played that. Yeah. 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 He took it away from uh, from William Goldsmith. Yeah. I will, I will um, say, uh, Chip, you mentioned, uh, you know, Nirvana playing Columbus as your um, Ed Sullivan moment. I don't know if anybody was uh, th- there. I was going to say there. Um, watching like live when Dave backed up Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on SNL, but that I was my, that. Th- that was my Ed Sullivan moment. That was just like talking to the kids at school on Monday, just like, did you? Can you believe like Dave Grohl's like, you know, in Tom Petty's band? Now? I mean, that was just like all we talked about for <laughs> weeks. Um, it was just the coolest thing. I'm really envious it, of this experience that you guys got because I, like I was saying earlier, I came into the already dramatically altered world. I didn't get an Ed Sullivan moment, either that my father got with the Beatles on Ed Sullivan or with what you guys got with Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit and you know the various live performances and the, the, the real-time release of the record. Uh, we, we have had, I have had as, a, as an upper tier millennial, no equivalent. So, mm. Cheers I don't know, man. Guys. Somebody called me a boomer, and I thought I was totally age appropriate for this. Conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. I actually want to. I, mean, I came in. I, like, I, I was like in my early kind of twenties. I didn't think I was too much out of the you know appropriate. It was age, whatever. It was, a, it was a sarcastic joke. Um, I mean, I, I can't think of another rock and roll moment that where you could sense the earth shifting on its axis mm-hmm. under you. Mm-hmm. What about when Hannah Montana twerked? <laughs> I will say that I think the first time I heard the Spice Girls, I was like, oh, this is the change. (laughs) And I'm not going to bag on the Spice Girls because I actually think they're a very entertaining band and really good for what they did. But that was the moment I was like, oh, this is changing. All of this is changing. Yeah, I was playing music in high school at the time, like trying to form a first band. And it was like we went from, yeah, what Chip was saying, like trying to figure out like these hair metal songs that we couldn't play or figure out how to play. We had shitty instruments and stuff. And then when this came out, my actual like first experience was this was actually playing it. It was like, oh shit, I can actually play this. Like I can figure this guitar riff out. Yeah. I mean, it sounds terrible, but I at least we could get together with a group of people and we could play Smells Like Teen Spirit for literally, we would play that and Danzig Twisted Cane for eight hours. Twisted like, <laughs> is a really simple song, though. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, I could figure that on a guitar or play drums to that, and you would just get a group of friends around, and you would just play that all day. And that was my experience of, like, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Come As You Are, like, figuring those songs out just so that we could play them as much as, you know, listening to them on the radio. Can we, can we talk for just a minute about... Uh, I mean, that was totally our generation Sex Pistols. Like, because, I mean, that was, like, when mm, I was... Like, yeah. Our, that, I mean, it was like that and Sunny Day Real Estate. That's what I started the band. Can, can we talk for just a minute about the, the guitar part that starts Teen Spirit? And, you know, you think you're getting one thing and then it goes totally off the rails. And hearing that when it's like, I'm not sure what this is. It could be one of those like hard rock bands that they're starting to play that that are, aren't might maybe quite as glammy. And you hear that little jangly intro and you're like, okay, this, yes. could be R- this could be R.E.M. or it could be, you know, something like that. And then all of a sudden, wham, it, it kind of announces itself as, nope, this isn't where, where you think it's going. And they did a couple of things. 
too, uh, production wise that are like really unique about the record that, I mean, everybody talks about the guitar sound. I'm sure they sold, there's whoever makes chorus pedals probably sold like millions of them after <laughs> that record came out. Um, I certainly bought one, but like, um, I mean, talking about Dave, for example, everybody focuses on the drums, but his harmonies on that record are really well done. And I think oh, yeah. as, as a kid, you know, like listening to that record, I, I feel like I learned how to sing harmony by just listening to that record and, and, and paying attention to, to what, and I don't even think I knew it was him at the time, you know, but it just sounded so perfect. And I don't think anybody did it together. They really didn't. I mean, you know, he sang live, I guess, but I never yeah, saw him, you know, um, but but that and then I think um, just I mean, there's like weird moments where there's like, I think it's in Drain You where there's that whole breakdown and it gets really like sort of free form and there's like some noise that sounds like a rubber duck or something being squeezed, you know, like, why the fuck is that there? I don't know but it rules and you're just like okay there's that sound and when you hear it you know you immediately know what it's where it's coming from even if you don't know what it is and i know there's just little things like that you're, you're just even like polly being like completely stripped down or you know um uh God, what's the last song on that record uh something in the way where it's just so um mm. The, the 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 strings are so well, endless nameless is the last song depends on which bad. version you got the original <laughs> yes, pressings did don't you have get it. the first pressing uh i got the the version of it that my friend who lived down the street recorded on cassette for me <laughs> nice uh, so i don't i don't know but um but there's just little things like that where like there's a cello or there's you know everybody talks about the 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 obvious touchstones the loud guitars the screaming sing vocals you know the uh, the drums but i think it it doesn't give enough credit for 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 me anyways you know as a kid then and still you know playing music it just it really taught me a lot about um dynamics and like sequencing of a record and like highs and lows and how you don't need every song to be this like blasting you in the face thing you know so when those moments of like really low lows come in it's like that breath that you need because the next song is going to hit you super hard and i think it's just brilliantly i mean butch vig gets a lot of credit for the record for sure but like it i don't know if, career. if that's talked about enough you know where he it really felt like they they really thought about it and they really like made it an experience that man to this day i mean if you want to find a perfectly sequenced well i i remember somebody talking about it the sequence of the records would just tossed off like they asked kurt and he just said yeah teen spared and blown which sounds ridiculous because could you imagine teen spirit number four i mean it's no. like it's it's written sometimes on my podcast i ask people like you know, when you write a song, do you feel like do you come away with like going like, oh, that's closing the record or that's opening the record or whatever? And I mean, you know, was it high fidelity when they talk about like first, you know, side A track ones or whatever? And mm -hmm. it's like smells like Teen Spirit and but yada yada yada. I mean, you can't picture it being anywhere else. Some somebody in this Brady Bunch square 
uh, mentioned that mentioned that it, it sounds like an announcement, and that that is what it is. If I'm if I'm at Geffen, that's the first oh. song because it in it it either that or maybe in Bloom or whatever, which just sounds like a boom, kick the doors open, um, statement. You know, I didn't realize you could do it as a Brady Bunch square. Thank you for pointing that out. I just uh, moved to that <laughs> format. Oh my gosh! And I like oh, it Tim. Really better. Tim, let me How introduce you to the fine re- world of Zoom. Revelation. Yeah, well, this is how you decide that. who who talks next, because then you just go in order around the square. Yeah. Well, Circle I just see the squares bouncing. Yep. Uh, I can't help you with that. Now, if I get that one, fourteen out. windows, mm-hmm. and well, I know I'm there twice. Sorry, but uh, I'm going to kick you off. Well, other person monopolize. Kick, the, kick the... a non-picture off. Boom! You're gone. Mm. Okay. Band, Phantom okay. Phil. All right. <laughs> oh, well, that's why that's why I heard the double voices. Okay. We haven't heard from Johnny Hooper yet. Yeah, hoops. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of Nirvana, Johnny? <laughs> Did it make it up there? Yeah, they crossed the border pretty well. <laughs> Did we ever talk about the story of? Um, where they're booked into play uh, a venue in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, on the very same night that the Tragically Hip were. And the Tragically Hip headlined that show. No, you know, I love a Tragically Hip story. There you go. That's like 1990. Oh, so that's like up to here. Bleach tour. Yep. Yeah. I'd love to know that Kirk jumped up on stage and and did Killer Whale Tank with... uh, with Gord that night. Oh, that's an obscure reference, Tim. Thank you. I know my hip. <laughs> I have Received. my I have my bootlegs. You do. If we can Clearly. throw some manix in here somewhere, I'll, we'll complete the trilogy of uh, of Tim's, you know, uh, uh, essential bands. Um, Are they going to ever release those uh, the the final hip shows as anything? I mean, I know I've seen the documentary, obviously, but I would think a compilation of the last gigs or something on, you know. Do you want to make me or... weep uncontrollably on it yes, over and over that's, again? That's the goal. <laughs> like I did when I was watching those. Yes. Uh, um, no, I just I don't know. Just a thought off off topic, obviously, but I don't know. I don't know if uh, uh, you know off topic. I don't know that they're going to release anything else. It's not like the, it's not like the Prince Estate where they're just gonna like pump out, you know, four volumes of of you know of material for every record, whenever stuff. Which I'm gonna buy, but I mean, I don't know that I don't think the hip have that sort of drive. Well, the hip have said that they have enough for five albums. They'll probably release two, but hmm. that's but that's what they say they're doing. Gotcha. All right, let's get back on topic while we're here um who doesn't like this record just flat out say it you know i don't like this record anybody anybody thinks that this is the third of the three best records of the three records you you think i thought i was i thought i was tired of it and then i heard it last night again i listened to it a couple times and i'm like this album's amazing you just hear something so much you get so used to it and then last night it all just kind of popped again with me well I think of it this way because, I mean, you still hear Teen Spirit all the time on radio if you turn a radio on. 
Mm -hmm. um, I personally got hearing Teen Spirit and boom, didn't think about it. But as a, as a whole, it it's still very vital and it still catches my ear, even the overplayed songs. Like it, just the just like Teen Spirit by itself is right. I've heard it enough. But you hear it lead to In Bloom and then on and on and on all the way down to Endless Nameless. That that makes more of a more sense to me. I mean, sort of like um, yeah, to bring up the eighty, like Def Leppard's Hysteria. You hear Pour Some Sugar on Me. You're like, oh god, this song again. But you play the whole you play the whole album, and it makes sense in the whole scheme. <laughs> At least to me, it does. So, okay, so this is a better question, other than it, not liking it. Is it possible for people like us to actually appreciate the whole record as is, or are we burnt out on the singles? Because I did not listen to, I listened to the album a bunch of times, but after the first time, I skipped the four big singles. So I was like, I've heard these songs, I've analyzed them, I'm, I'm just going to focus on the stuff I'm not as familiar with as far as the album tracks, because I was just like, I don't need, I still hear these songs on in the car every time i get in the car they're 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 being played like even the station that says we play new music still plays <laughs> nirvana mostly I, still, I, I still listen i still listen to it top to bottom but there's no question that like the magic the just fucking magic at 16 that i heard in october of 1991 from teen spirit on the radio that's not there anymore and to be frank it wasn't there in january of 1992 like it was already it had, they had already killed yeah. it for him. Yeah, who gets in the nostalgia that's, buzz? That's kind of how I felt. I was 17 when I out. But uh, it, for me, it was always better as a whole. I mean, yeah, sure, the videos were, the videos came out on MTV in, into 92, but it, it I mean, I, I had it because I didn't have the see much later. So I almost didn't have a choice but to listen to it to all of side one and then all of side two. So, I mean, yeah, that's kind of how I always consume music is by albums, not necessarily singles. Thumbs yeah, down that's what to Andy Wallace. What does that mean, Johnny? I, think it might... I don't like this production, Tim. I, I honestly, you know, we talked on the In Utero episode about the rawness of it and the, the kind of the vitality of it. This, uh, at the time, I thought it was too slick, and I, I it does not age well for me, personally. So you're I gotta the, say, I think, yeah. I think it's situational a little bit for some people. Like, I mean, I put my headphones on this morning, opened my front door to run, and the the chords to teen spirit and the drums came on and i was just like already flying you know like i just it just it hit me in the same way it hit me you know all those years ago um and i feel like too like fortunate that you know my son he's nine like i said you know he likes juice world and pop smoke like he likes only dead rappers apparently <laughs> but he's gonna love tupac yeah, he does. He's he's coming around. Biggie's next, but um, 
I played him, you know, uh, in Bloom, and we're on the porch, like, grilling, and he's just humming, like, without even thinking about it. He's just hum humming the chorus, you know, and singing it. And so it's 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 kind of cool to kind of be able to live it in this way vicariously through somebody's somebody else hearing it for the first time again, you know, and somebody who, you know, doesn't even like rock music, you know, like, sure, he's nine, but like, if I put on rock music in the car, he's like, turn this shit off, you know, like, I don't want to hear this. He'll come around. But he, he I mean, I know. He saw the Post Malone performance, there. didn't he? I, it, you know, we <laughs> talked about, we actually talked about that. And I was like, did you know that uh, Post Malone cover this and it rules, you know, like he actually did a really good job, you know, because he uh, knows it from like Spider-Man. Yeah, and I, I saw that Post Malone thing and I gotta say, and I don't know if any of you agree, I, because I'm not, I'm not really a Post Malone fan, but he put together a nice crack band to put those songs together for charity. And it was like, it was better than I had imagined. And I, mean, it's just I, a I remember posting the songs. Yeah, I guess know? so. Um, it, it, <laughs> I, I even posted on social media as I was watching. It's like, all right, why, why is, why are people trying to turn me into a Post Malone fan? <laughs> I mean, it, but it, it gave me a, a greater respect for him because he obviously has more influences than what is painfully obvious in his art. But yeah. Oh, man. It, it, it is reminding me that I was thinking about, um, you know, a lot of great songwriters. They get covered a lot. And I don't, it don't, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't feel like they've been covered a ton. I know Sturgis, um, Sturgill Simpson did a cover. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of like people that have done and, and versions that are kind of like, you know, um, not, not true to the original kind of sound like Post Malone tried to keep it pretty yeah, much sounding Tor like theirs. Tori Amos Tori did a Amos. piano vocal version. Um, I've heard, I've heard kind of dance, dance versions of it. I mean, they basically d like do that big uh, chorus distorted riff as a clean riff over a, over speed, but um, I, I think I know what it, you mean, Jay. In in the sense that, like, when we talk about the the most impactful bands, like, the, say, the obvious one is the Beatles, yeah, and the Beatles albums that live on forever and ever, Revolver and and that, and there have been a billion covers of of Beatles songs that have even gone on to be hits on their own, like Aerosmith covering. Right, yeah, and stuff like that. Um, and I don't think that there's ever going to be a an outlet for that to happen because when you cover it, you it almost feels like you're like in a wedding band or something. I don't because I, it's so popular, right? Actually, also, it's like covering the Sex Pistols. Like you mentioned them being the Sex Pistols of the of the '90s. If you were to cover the Sex Pistols, you're never going to achieve that level of like energy and vitriol that the Sex Pistols put into you know, Holiday in the Sun or whatever that you're trying yeah. to, or, or God Save the Queen. And covering Nirvana, you almost have to do it the way that, like, Sturgill Simpson did it, where you own it in a different genre and oh, yeah. taking it a totally different direction. When when Puffy oh, does I, Nirvana, it's going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike when he does uh, Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin? Yeah, um, no, no, no. 
The last time that I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit was at my own wedding. And uh, I had a DJ, I didn't have a band, and I was adamant that we play rock music that was going to get people on the dance floor and appeal, you know, to every generation. And the two biggest smash hits were Mr. Brightside and Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> nice. Killers, like I tell you what, if you, if you if you play in a band and you cover a Nirvana song at a, at a show, and nobody knows anything about your band, everybody is psyched. Like, I mean, it's it's sort of like playing Michael Jackson at a wedding. Like, peop, it, if nobody dances, and it, and it's a it's a lame mm -hmm. wedding, like put on some Michael Jackson, everybody's gonna get up. Right, oh, it's, yeah, a human, it's, just, it's a human universal in a sense, yeah. Com yeah. Completely and totally. And if you're playing at a rock show and, and you're like, okay, like this is not working out. Like we should just play Breed and just get off the stage. You know, it works. Well, that's all I'm saying. Plus, or, um, yes, that, that's that, also that, true that Aaron said that if you if you play um, My Own Worst Enemy by Lit, everyone goes completely bad. <laughs> I, think that, I think that also might just be like specifically like a white person between the I've, ages of 30 and 50. That's when that I've happens. been doing it at rehearsal and it is like... It's, oh my God. I could hear you doing My Own Worst Enemy, Aaron. I could totally hear you doing that. Oh. What's the word? <laughs> we... Beach slang. Would can I? Be that. Can I, Jake? Can I mention the fact that about? I was gonna say. <laughs> now might be the time. We got approached by the uh, the brothers lit to uh, to come on the show, and we rejected. Come on, <laughs> seriously? You Why should... would you do that? That, Dude, would, be a, that would be a gold mine of material. Yeah, that um, would have been great. We we rejected. <laughs> we, we rejected because. Uh -huh. Oh. How did it feel when E6 did a version of your record? They did it better Wait, than yours. Wait, E6 they followed up with lit? us twice. Hmm? E6 covered Oh, yes. Lit? No, Eve 6, Eve 6 were explicit that when they did Horoscope, they were trying to make a record that sounded, that like, sounded that like that. Lit. Oh, okay. Wow. wow. All right. I, I, I am so, I'm so averse to that song. Like it so just good. makes the, me so angry. That lit song of that makes me so angry. Jam. I was like, I can't. I couldn't get on the phone with these guys. Like I would be so irritated that the interview would not go well. And <laughs> I'm never gonna get over this. You rejected lit. Yeah, that we used, is, when, that when is we were insane. in a band. We, when we were in a band together. Um, we uh, we would like Jay would play that riff to piss us off. Or, 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 or it might have been key, but it would be like, eh, 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 and we'd be like, shut the fuck up. I have a, a, a totally off topic, similar story though. When we went to um, South by Southwest, um, Duncan Sheik's publicist was begging done waiting to do an interview or have him come play a couple songs in the hotel room or like they were begging for press and um, we did not do Duncan Sheik. Wow. When, when was this? <laughs> it was probably 2004 2002 it was it was you know years after barely breathing and uh he was i don't know if he's trying to kick no, his... he had a he had a different record out in 2004 which was actually not half bad but yeah oh yeah yeah but uh i mean it, he actually did a sort of grungy-ish song at that point called white limousine which is actually really really damn good but uh, it's no barely breathing. Yes. 
I give credit the best, but the best lit uh, version that uh, or you know that I've heard is uh, was it season maybe season one, the really short season one of Parks and Rec, where they're canvassing the neighborhood and Mark Brandanowitz and uh, um, Aubrey Plaza or whatever go to get because Andy's in casts or whatever, and they're doing Rock Band and they're doing My Own Worst Enemy. So it's like, and it's perfect. It's Andy, Andy Dwyer just like screaming into the microphone, please tell me what. Like, it's so great. And then Leslie Nope and stuff walk in and it's completely awkward. Nice. It's the best. <laughs> Fun fact I have the Letters to Cleo t shirt that, uh, that, um, Adam Scott Adam wore Scott? Oh, repeatedly on that. Man. Love nice. It. Love it. Yeah. Nice. It was a, love it was an impulse purchase during the quarantine. Nice. Oh my god. <laughs> Those things so happen. Good. They, they so happen. That Tim, that would be great for you because then you could do like a quarantine version of that one episode where he goes crazy and makes the claymation video. Oh, or I'm whatever. working on my I'm working on my board game. Don't worry. Yes. The Dig Perfect. Me Out board game will be available via Kickstarter. <laughs> nice. That's, pa- hey. that's definitely a Patreon thing. Hey, he, he, he made he made a big chief esque like parody album. So, oh really? Well, isn't that what you did? Oh, oh, oh the the yes, yeah, I did yes. the, I did a, a black exploitation. It wasn't that long ago, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can you can listen to it on SoundCloud, my my version of Shaft. There you go. <laughs> Featuring okay. all loops. No no all actual loops. instruments played. So so back to Nirvana. Yeah, let's I get wanna... back to Nirvana. I want to say so, like, um, we've <laughs> talked a lot about on this episode about how I, I came here with an agenda, I got to say. So we, we we talked a lot about how this, like, blew a ton of people's minds and, and it, like, threw hair metal off of it. And yet, like, on Twitter, every time somebody says, like, Nirvana blew hair metal off the stage, Tim jumps in to say, like, that's actually not true. It's much more nuanced than that. And so, like, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Because, it, like, it, it, it is true. It is more nuanced. It is, I, I have, like, two more sentences. <laughs> so, like, it is more nuanced. But, but, like, contemporaneously, it even seemed like that. Like, at the time, people were like, holy balls. Yeah. This is blowing shit up, you know. So, well, I mean, because for a good 18 months or so, right after Nirvana broke, I mean, they, they coexisted pretty well. I, I, I like to joke and say hair metal died on January 1st, 1993. Well, yeah, and, but I mean, and there was lead up, you know, there was REM and stuff and, you know, yeah. like, you know, like there was, there was alternative radio and Austin Chains came out first, 10 came out before I, this. I remember. You know, like, um, but, but at the time it's, it still felt like this was. When I first heard about nice. this band. I was in the cafeteria and talked to one of my friends. He's like, have you heard Nirvana? And I thought he was talking about Robert Plant's manic Nirvana <laughs> because that was big at the time. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's a damn good I'm record like, too. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good. What, what, why, why are you so like excited about that? <laughs> He's like, no, this band called Nirvana. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me, they let def- me do it. They definitely weren't the only band at that period of time, but, um, but they, Smell Like Teen Spirit video was on Headbangers Ball and 120 Minutes. So yes. it, it reached both audiences. And that's where, I mean, I saw it. That's how I first, well, no, I think I bought the cassette first, but then I saw the video on Headbangers Ball. 
So it was a hard rock metal song to me, even though I heard the tape and it wasn't, it didn't sound like Motley Crue to me. Yeah. Um, but it, it definitely was kind of straddling the line between those two. Well, the, the, the era. Key, oh, sorry, God. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Aaron. I, I was just I'm saying, chatterbox, that so. era was like, you know, it's like it, it was metal like at the end, but it's just like White Lions, like third record and shit like that. So actually, <laughs> I was going to out, you were like, this is. Oh my God, this is where it's well, at. I, I, I was going to bring that up too, because to, because to Scott's point, like the, the the hair metal and and this new alternative thing kind of was happily coexisting for about eighteen months. What's what is Tim? Apparently, showing? while Aaron's here joining us, he's also releasing music on. <laughs> fan camp at the same time i just got an email that's saying yeah dystopian demos were just released yeah. and i thought i this was not a placement this was actually sitting over here on my wall that just is where it is nice. <laughs> no but um no so what i was trying to say was like in 92 a lot of these hair metal bands that if if anyone was really following hair metal at the time all of them were putting out their third albums and this was where, you know, they've already screwed all the chicks and done all the drugs and partied out and everything else. So they're like, all right, so now we need to be taken seriously. So a lot mm -hmm. of these hair metal bands were putting out... Like, dog Eat Dog by Warrant. Dog Eat Dog by Warrant is the perfect example of it. Yes. Faster Pussycats Whipped is another one. What's the, what's the Skid Row album? Subhuman uh, race, but yeah. that came out in '95. Right, Tim. We actually reviewed that one. I didn't know if that was a third or the fourth. I'm sorry, I'm not as up yeah. on Skid Row's discography well, as had, you are. They had a covers EP before that. So. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> there's, but, um, some, there's something else going on here too, which is like the Black Crows, and there's a band called Hardline, mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, just like you know, Driving Crying, King's X, the Four Horsemen, uh, Queen's Reich, Four Horsemen. All of these bands that are maybe have a foot in the glam rock hair metal thing, but are definitely bringing something else in there, either blues or roots rock or progressive. Oh, yeah. Or, And if you look like Queensryche, their big album is filled with songs that are maybe kind of cheesy, but there's a lot of social consciousness in there. There's a lot of talking about the environment and issues with law enforcement and colonialism and all of those kinds of things. Which Queensryche never Queensryche never like sang about girls and parties. Yeah, they never that did. They were, there was a lot of like cyberpunk technology is you know is dangerous uh, kind of stuff. But that you know they had a big hit you know the year before when in, the in 1990. Family. Yeah, but uh, Empire was a big song. Jet City mm -hmm. Woman is anybody listening? I mean, all of these things and you know driving and crying same thing. They're not necessarily singing about girls and partying. But yeah. they're having these hits. I interviewed Michael Wilton from Queensryche at that time, uh, right when Empire came out. And I remember asking him about what bands in Seattle were blowing up. And I, that might have been the, I think that actually was the first time I had ever heard of Nirvana. I think Bleach was already out, but I didn't know Bleach at all. But he mentioned um, Nirvana being a band that he was seeing around town or hearing about around Seattle. And um, that was definitely the first time I think I heard the name Nirvana. Now, my, I, you said about me saying well this doesn't it's not wasn't a hard stop that's based on my my high school cafeteria experience which was we had a ping pong table as a part of our senior lounge in the cafeteria only seniors were allowed in there 
It had a couch. It had a boombox. And you could play a CD or a cassette. And f- when the week that these albums came out, or this album came out, it battled with Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. It, it went out. Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 went in. Then Nirvana's came... You know, that came out, Nirvana went in. So for like a month, all we listened to was was those two records while we played ping pong during lunch. <laughs> nice. So that's my experience. That's the only thing I'm basing it on. I don't have any categ- you know, actual you know, reasoning why. I'm just well, saying I, that happened in the cafeteria. I, it was a battle. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've pointed to more like... Uh, yeah, there might have been. On Twitter, <laughs> to more definitive resources like yeah. on, on, on Twitter. That was, but, that was know, before the Cuddy Sark. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's it's like I'm, senior lounge. I'm, I'm really kind of I'm really kind of less ending in more than 280 characters or whatever we're allowed now. You know, it's it's like they did. I mean, I was into Skid Row. Like the stuff that stopped for me at the time of Nirvana was like Poison and Motley Crue. And you know, I I know Dig Me Out has a different opinion, but I don't think Motley Crue had anything to offer after their first album. But uh, oh, like you Poison and stuff like right there. You I know, I know, off. I know. That's what I'm here for. I'm like, I'll play Mr. Bungle if you don't behave. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, but like, but I kept going with bands that continued to like put on good stuff like Skid Row and like, hey, I'll say it, Bullet Boys, I stayed with them. And Dawkin, I know there's some Dawkin fans in the house. <laughs> so yeah, own, so uh, there's a, so there's some new ones. On vinyl. But Scott, but Scott, Dawkin was done by, by the time Nirvana came out. Well, I they mean, came back, yeah. so. but yeah. they did come, they did come but back. I still, the, I still listen to their old records. <laughs> that first run was done by 1989. Well, I think so. Beast from the East was in the 90s. That no, was, it was where does Jackal fall in? Oh. Okay, I'm done. I'm Johnny done. is having a meltdown. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> um, Poor Johnny. I, I think this is evidence that you guys just need to do more episodes where everyone can't. Yeah. Or way up, way past their bedtime. And then we, right. can just, we can just do a straight metal podcast <laughs> where we just wasn't we like can uh, talk about some uh, some shark sandwich and or whatever. Like, yes, you got to do more. You got to do more. Just like free for all zooms. Like this would be amazing if it's just like <laughs> metal. Let's go. Here's a topic. Fight. Okay, <laughs> hour later. <laughs> hour later. Uh, does anybody uh, does anybody else feel that like the that like my theory is. As as Nirvana and and bands of the alternative era uh, started to to explode and peak, that all the partying, all the music, like hey, we want to party, we want to hear about you know girls and we whatever, that slowly that became country basically. Yeah, like yeah. I like I'd, basically, I'd, I'd be really interested yeah. to see like a chart basically of like oh male country stars are getting quote unquote sexier. Um, oh. well, you know, the, the BPM, remember, when Bob. Bon Jovi starts aging with their audience and leaning yes. more towards country and roots. Right. Rock. Right. Yeah. But I'd be, I'd be interested if somebody brought up BPM before, like, I'd be interested to see like when country music starts to kind of become party and club music. Um, and that's whatever, only you know, been like, in the last few years. Oh no. Yeah, this is also when sound scan comes in and we start realizing that the actual sales of oh, yeah. metal country and country are soaring. Well, yeah. the, those things have been historically underreported. Yeah. Do I have to remind you of the achy, breaky, hark phenomenon in the in the nineties? <laughs> a little, uh, I gotta, a little I tenor named Garth Brooks. A little little gentleman named Garth Brooks, exactly. Well, if no, you, that, speaking that was of Billy Ray Cyrus, 
Speaking um, of Garth, if you look at the album charts, Garth and Nirvana are, cha- are trading us yes. number one sales spots in yeah. that January of 92. Mm. Yep. You know, back and forth. I mean, right. that's absolutely massive. And you, as much as we make fun of him, if you look at like him being on the Kiss tribute and doing a pop oh, album <laughs> and all of those things, you know, he's definitely more more rock and roll than, you know, Randy Travis or oh, yeah. well, you know, yeah. whoever was big right before him. He brought arena, arena Rock to country. Like, yeah, he's absolutely. the person that merged those two Don't things. What about I Shania find Twain? curious is the second Shania Twain wave... was... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Marissa. What I find interesting is that second wave power pop came after Nirvana. Um, In the late 90s, yeah. Well, even before that, because the other thing that's going on in Seattle with the grunge scene in Washington State is the uh, international pop overthrow thing where you're getting... You know all those K records, and you're getting Teenage Fan Club and getting. Uh, help me out here because I'm totally blanking on the, all those yeah. bands. Material Velvet issue, Crush and and Jellyfish, yeah. and um, yes, exactly. The presence of the United States of America. I mean, all of that stuff is kind of going on in parallel. Fountains and of it Wayne. Seems, it seems like there's a lot of bands that are riffing off of uh, Big Star and Cheap Trick and those kind of bands at that point. We well, say yeah, a lot I'm, of those, just, a lot of those bands broke in the in the later '90s, like '96, '97, when when a lot of the major labels were like like everyone was saying with the Telecommunications Act and all of that, where where a lot of um, a, they were placing a lot of safe bets. So yeah, sure, there was a few like guitar pedals in the sound, but it was very safe for mom to like. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that struck me, I guess that, that this is something that, that stuck with me when I read it, and this is years old, but it, and I can't remember what the publication was, but um, it was a review of one of Dada's records, records. Um, I think in the mid to late 90s, it, it was, I think the self-titled album. And- That's uh, it, 98. Yeah, it was a brutal review and the review, the, the, the core criticism was how pitiful these poor assholes sound like they've never heard, never mind. And that seemed to me to be like the most um, nasty thing you could say about a rock band, I guess in 1997 or 98, whenever it was, is, is that you were so um, out of touch and you know, so far afield to sound like, you know, you were still, you were, you're doing these Simon and Garfunkel-esque harmonies and you're hearkening back to like the Beatles and the Birds and the Beach Boys. And it's just so passe, it's so pastiche. And to think that like that then, that that insult became its own niche. And I, and I mean, power pop has always been denigrated by, you know, the mainstream at large. Was that Pitchfork? No, I think it, was like, it might have even been like an allmusic.com review or something, but it was it was yeah. so mean. It was so yeah. incredibly mean-spirited. And, you know, particularly since, like, I think at least just as far as the structure of the songwriting is concerned, like, okay, maybe you don't like it, but I think technically speaking, it's relatively unassailable. But anyway, it, to, to me, that, that's just a curious phenomenon is that, you know, you, you go from... The worst thing you could be is to sound like a band, or is to be a band that that sounds like it never listened to Nevermind seriously, 
well, to I... a to like like Stacy's mom being a hit or to you know or to fastball having the way become this <laughs> massive thing in 1998. So right. and, you know maybe it's just me and my desire to immediately steer a conversation power pop. You know, but. Well, no, because um, I think I think Nevermind to me has always been a bit of a blessing and a curse. It revitalized rock, like in this explosion, right? And then all the labels wanted to go sign bands that sounded like this. But then it also redefined rock as I think two things that it hasn't been able to shake: angry and um, and kind of loud and abrasive. <laughs> and as it goes forward, now like it can't. You had things like that power pop thing happen, but those bands couldn't really, like they got criticized for not sounding like Nirvana. It's like, well, we don't want to sound like Nirvana. We want to sound like the Beatles. Right. Like, no, you don't understand. Nirvana happened, so now you have to sound like Nirvana. It's like, well, no, there can be other kinds of rock music. That can, that, it was like, that, no, we don't have time for that. Let's go listen to the country and rap. And like rock is now this angry, aggressive, loud well, music. Well, Jade, Jade, that was the very thing that happened to Sloan with their first record. Hmm. There, there, there were basically because they, they have harmonies all over the place, and their their influences were mainly Big Star, and and the Beatles, and uh, to a le- to a slightly lesser degree Kiss because everyone wrote, but um, uh, Geffen they they were signed to Geffen and they they were told to crank up the crank up the amps and the and the pedals. Mm-hmm. And with the second record, they said no, and you know they got nothing. Well, I mean, support. music is music is reactionary, right? Yeah. Like every sort of big movement that I think we see is a reaction to something else that came before it, you know. And the Sloan thing is like a really good um, example, I guess, of a band decide to react in the opposite direction that they were expected to and i think some of the power pop stuff like super drag or you know Mm. something like that where like the guitars were still loud and they were still crunchy but like there was more of a focus on on the harmony or there's more of a focus on the arrangement you know seemed to be a, a reaction to not wanting to get pigeonholed and and keep in mind you know at the same time there's these grunge facsimiles like marissa kind of brought up earlier happening so it's like do i want to be put in this category of bush and creed and you know these sort of watered down versions of this like angry white guy music or do i want to sort of look you know look to the past look to the beatles you know look to cheap trick or something like that and sort of still take the like modern approach that Nirvana brought to like guitar rock, you know, the, the, the killer of hair metal, you know, mm-hmm. but but taken in a direction that could be accessible to a Nirvana fan, but something that, well, you know, a Beatles fan or a Kings fan might also. It becomes anti-establishment. Right. Because, yeah, it, okay, well, if, if you're gonna do this, we're just going to, you know, focus the lens farther back. And if, if you want to, you know, orchestrate all your music around um, defying convention and defying uh, structure, and and you know, giving the finger to that. You know, the 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 polar opposite of that is to say, no, we're going to pay total homage to to structure and to rock music as it was defined on Ed Sullivan. And uh, we're going to court those structures and those rules, and we're going to maybe, you know, 
reinvent them a little bit, but our, our adherence to formula becomes in, a, in its own way sort of, yeah. It, it, a little sub subversive. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, you say that for a band, a band that comes to mind that did that kind of mentality is Third Eye Blind. I mean, because it, because I mean, yeah, they still had some of the grungy content with the jumper single and stuff like that. But, um, but then on the uh, on the flip side or the same side, you get Matchbox Twenty. So, so I feel like everybody has to disclose what album they voted for in that poll. And I will be time out, time out, time out, time out. The Matchbox 20 record. I'm sorry. I feel really bad for interrupting that. But I wanted to interrupt like 10 seconds. There's a difference between Matchbox 20 and Third Eye Blind. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's subtle. Oh, one sings about crystal meth. The other, the other one actually did crystal meth. <laughs> <laughs> no, did you um, know he almost burned I do, his I do, palms I, off I do want to try to get ice on acid. Yeah, yeah, no, but it, it, I mean, who voted for Scott, what? Scott's joke is kind of apt, but but it was just it. I mean, oh, 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 Matchbox Twenty was just like, I can't believe that album came out in '96. That's when it's, I knew it was uh, over. Yeah, to be honest, when I, when I heard that album i was like oh i need to move on to something else like i the got thing i got completely you turned off on by radio. Then? no the next I was, thing you'll tell me is that three doors down is a different band because because <laughs> oh, like i really liked the first foo fighters record which came out in what like 96 oh it's 94 right. oh, that's 90 Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> oh my gosh oh, 95 95 okay 95 so i i i really dug that record especially the album like i didn't love big me but i this guitar it was so noisy and, and guitar driven yes. that I just really I dug that record and then something changed within the next year and it was it was because of Third Eye Blind not Third Eye Blind but uh, well that was part Matchbox of it. Matchbox 20, 20 we can, we can blame where, Matchbox 20 for all of society's ills apparently that that <laughs> really started to turn me towards like what else can I be listening to that's and I, I think I, that's when I really started listening to a lot of British music like really, like what are the obscure Britpop bands that I never got into? Like where's you know that kind of stuff? And just sort of looking for other things because America just seemed to be regurgitating like the same stuff. Well, that, that that was the problem in starting in '96. I mean, Third Eye Third Eye Blind actually had a couple of decent songs, so that I mean that that's how they stood out from the pack at least initially. But um, yeah, yeah, I started. Yeah. Can we can we talk about that word regurgitation? Because noted about Nirvana, it's look at the history of what we consider rock music. You go back to like Elvis and Chuck Berry, and it's exciting, and Gene Vincent, and it's dangerous. But by sixty two, sixty three, it's these you know yep. like teeny bop or pop guys, and then along comes the British Invasion. And that lasts for a while, but by the early 70s, you're back to, you know, James Taylor and singer-songwriter mm -hmm. and kind of lighter, more bland sounds. And then through the 70s, you build up to... Arena rock. Know, uh, well, you no, you build up to punk. And then well, that kind of brings it all back to Louie Louie or to Chuck Berry. Right. And through the 80s, you know, those hair metal bands get more and more proficient and less and less soulful. And then all of a sudden Guns N' Roses comes out and it's like back to Louie Louie. And yeah. then Nirvana, then it goes back to 
you know, we're getting Steelheart and we're getting <laughs> big blown out, you know, ballads. And then all of a sudden Nirvana comes along and it's back to Louie Louie. And, and then, then six years later, you've got everything you want by Vertical Horizon. Or you've got, you've <laughs> never gotten somebody, Helicopters, Glucifer, I don't care which, that get a chance to kind of blow the doors off again and bring it back to Louie Louie. It's the Strokes. And now we have no, Travis Scott. No, no. <laughs> Chuck Klosterman has talked about the death of the monoculture, and you know, there's there's a bunch of positives from that too. Yeah, like we have more diversity in our media too. But like, mm -hmm. there's not something that everybody knows anymore. Not really. And yeah. uh, I mean, I guess that's Donald Trump is the thing that everybody knows. But um, <laughs> there's not. I don't see in the future a chance for somebody to just be just to blow the doors I mean, Pearl yep. Jam was on the cover of cover of time I don't see that happening what about Beyonce yeah. in the near future no well, I, I just I just think Close. guitar music <clears throat> doesn't have a future as it currently exists no but until a bunch of kids is, decide is they jazz. want to be Robert Johnson yeah there's no, a great kids Scott, Scott you are you are absolutely right um with it I mean honestly this is how I think that you know having streaming and and all way too many avenues of obtaining music has ultimately killed it as a as a complete unifying force cuz it's free cuz it's free but what about all those kids learning guitar on youtube what are they what are they going to do with that those skills they're yeah, gonna... but they, they use, you know, today garage band and technology, and that's like, you know, where you get this like mashup of like the Billie Eilish or the Clario, where it's like kind of, you know, based in acoustic y things, but with synths and everything. I don't know. That's where it's going. Use historically, a they song, go back to throw some, it away. Historically, they go back to some form of roots, whether it's playing bluegrass or it's playing folk or it's playing blues. You know, and then they add whatever the energy of the day is onto it. I don't know. I feel like we've we've broken the formula at this point. I, I like it, and, and not in. I'm, I don't feel optimistic about it either. Like the the more I think well, about where music is headed in terms of our consumption of it and production of it, uh, particularly with you know Spotify and and how easy or rather not easy it is for musicians to make a living off their art rather than to make a living off of a commodity um i mean which is not to say that like the 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 music industry was was some you know utopian thing 20 years ago it wasn't but the way things are, are going now the way things are headed now i worry about the combination of commodification and the shortening of our attention spans as listeners and i just don't feel I don't feel hopeful. I just don't. Neither do I. Um, I mean, oh man, I totally lost my point. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm gonna. I also, we also don't want to get this right. too depressing. No. Yeah, no. It, <laughs> I, no, actually, it, it it is it is somewhat depressing though. It is. I mean, like something something that that can. I mean, we're never going to have an era where where a band's going to come out and nobody's going to know what to do with it because when nirvana exploded nobody had a clue that it was going to blow up as big as it did i mean pearl jams 10 they only predicted they were going to sell forty thousand copies of 10. so i mean when when nevermind blew up when 10 blew up 
they were like, we have no idea what's happening, so let's get everybody. And everybody got a nice, pretty paycheck to do their thing. And then if, when it did stick, they figured out, someone figured out how it did, and then we get Matchbox 20. Um, uh, but, um, but I'm no. sorry, I interrupted you. That's okay. Um, I was going to say, as somebody who I'm going to interrupt you again, I guess. No, go ahead. So, as somebody ahead, who man. isn't like a, there's a number of musicians here on this call, I believe. In fact, I think Ryan is, is that Ryan Extra Arms, Ryan, if I'm not mistaken? The band? Yes. I got that right? You, yep. You have multiple okay, musicians. So I, I, yeah, I know. That's why I said I think there's a lot of musicians. So I, even though, you know, um, I, I try to spend a lot of time looking for new music. And I'm just wondering, I wanted to ask some people who make a lot of music, what drives you guys to do that? Now, especially when, like Marissa says, I mean, I don't see albums ever being a thing anymore. I don't see rock music being a thing anymore. So you guys clearly aren't in it to, to, to make a living unless you do all of that, you know, on the road. So what what makes you what makes you keep doing it? Other than loving it, I mean that's the easy answer. Speaking of depressing, Ryan, that has Ryan, to be depressing you, to keep. Well, I can't Ryan, hear you, Ryan. Or something. For me, I it's mean, not money. It's uh, <laughs> just what I do, you know. So I just make shit. <laughs> yeah. And put yeah, it out. And, and for a long time, I played Aaron's shit. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, it's 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 this like idea that well, first it's like a disease. Not, I mean, maybe that's a bad analogy right now, but like, it it's something that's like so deep inside of me that I literally cannot help doing it. Like to the um, annoyance of everyone around me, probably at one time or another. So, you know, it's like I can't help but pick up a guitar if I see it. Like it just it's it's magnetic, you know, and like, I don't give a fuck about selling records or making money or anything like that, because it's just impossible. It's not even in my reality, but you know, okay. I, I look at somebody like Robert Pollard or somebody like that, who just, they can't stop. Yeah, you don't you care. Know? And it's Eight just million records. So it doesn't like piss you off and make you want to go imagine dragons or something. Right? No. Okay. <laughs> No, no what I'll, I'll say too is like it's a, it's a chase, right? And I think you're chasing something that I don't know. Like if I if I bring it back to Nirvana, you know, I, I I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that one of the biggest records of all time was made by somebody who loves Black Flag, uh, the Melvins, Sonic Youth, the Shags, Devo. Love, the Smithereens, like, the Archies. I mean, like Beatles, Blue Oyster Call, or um, you know, uh, whoever, yeah. uh, Boston, right? Like, and, and sort of took all of these influences and somehow turned them into this like incredibly visceral, affecting thing. That for I mean, everybody either has alluded to it or or, or whatever, but it, it changed something in them, you know. And mm -hmm. and I have to imagine that Kurt was chasing all of these sounds that it was hearing and, 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 you know, trying to emulate, you know, whatever it was about, um, you know, how do you sleep or, you know, uh, 
uh, a song on Daydream Nation or, or whatever it was and sort of just saying like, I need to be, I need to create something that affects me or affects somebody else rather in the same way that this shit is affecting me. And that's how I feel when I write music. Like I know it probably won't happen, but I don't care. Oh, same, you know? same. It's, yeah, you know? I mean, I, I've, I've joked with, with my, with my three records. It's like, if I ever become famous, it's a going to be by accident and B only last maybe two weeks. So, I mean, it, mostly because the, the three records I've made, we're not even a real band. We were just doing RPM challenges and they just turned out really well. Um, but, but it's when you when you don't care what the what the end um, impact is going to be, as long as it's for, as long as you like what you're doing, I think that that's all that should matter. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, expectations. That's usually what the band like. We expected yeah. this to be bigger, and it wasn't. Or it bigger. got big, and they didn't expect it to get big. Yeah. Yep. Well, we got, that, we got the that was your me out here. Hi, hey, Katie. Everybody. Hello. Hey, Katie. <laughs> Hi, Jason Zia. <laughs> is our daughter still up? Our daughter is still up. Oh my god. It's oh, all right. Boy. I got it under control. <laughs> it's all under control. <laughs> Oh, no, I think I'd pose, that, I'd pose hey, that question. Because... This, this might be a good point now that Katie's stepped in. Um, we rushed past it in the very beginning. I'm sorry to take us off topic, but I really do want to give props to Jay and Tim and Katie for 500 episodes. I mean, that is really something. I mean, come on. Every week. I mean, come on. It was and not in our like, vows. <laughs> every single week. Like, bravo. She didn't like, sign I up mean, for this. A lot of content. I'm very, I'm very picky about my podcasts, and I love this Damn. one. And bravo to you for doing it, showing up, and doing a quality product. I mean, yeah, cheers. I'm gonna tell you that early cheers. on, early on, I had um, our daughter was an infant, and we lived in like this little townhouse, and there were times that I was like, wow, I was, uh, you know. <laughs> nursing a screaming baby in like a closet so that he could record somewhere. Talk about <laughs> I like, I underwater. definitely did not <laughs> sign up for this. <laughs> what are you I'm still- also married to a musician and I just want to say that I am. Right? Oh, there, there she is. There's the future of Dig Me Out for episodes <laughs> 1000 to right. 2000. She's gonna inherit the inherit the intellectual property. What are you still doing? There you go. It's the Ivanka of like that's my favorite. Yeah, that's not a good comparison, dude. Not cool. Inherit the. All right. Shut it down. Shut it down. (laughs) I remember doing the. uh, I'm a musician too, so I'm I'm down. I remember doing the Chainsaw Kittens interview at your townhouse. Did we boot you out of the? Like I was in one room and Tim was in the other. Did we boot you out of the house to do that interview? Sure I'm did. sorry. <laughs> sure did. Yep. Nice. Sometimes it happens. It's, we got to talk about Chainsaw Kittens. I mean, I, you know, well, that was a vital episode. If we don't talk about them, literally no one else is. <laughs> well, and I'm like a, 
conservatory musician, right? Like I'm like a classically trained musician. So I'm really used to people not wanting me to sing in their band. So it was a very similar situation. Like I'm, I'm just never going to be cool enough to be in the band and it's fine. But you're cool enough to be the voice of the podcast. Thanks, honey. Yay! There you are. <laughs> it's great to see all you guys. I hope you had fun tonight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you that's ushering that's the end of this? Of fun. <laughs> no, I'm shutting it down for our daughter. Oh, I'm okay. leaving. You can stay and finish that bottle. You finish it. Okay. You need to get some sleep. <laughs> you need to get some sleep. You, 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 you got the... some crayons back for that. Okay. Finish the whiskey, Daddy. <laughs> Oh, okay. Nice. So there it is. I was going to say... Put my headphones back on here. Um, what the fuck was I going to say? Uh, I might have I consumed too much Cuddy Sark to remember anything <laughs> at this point. Uh, nope, it's gone. There was a... No, there, it, I'm, there, just a I, I'm oh, just... I know what it was. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You were talking about... You know, people having difficulty to get to music, and I feel like that's a shame because, and, and Jay could probably attest to this. Since we've started doing, started tracking new releases, the amount of new music that comes out every week that is relevant to like what we listen to, and this podcast is astounding in its quality. Like literally, this year, bands that have been around since the mid '90s have put out some of the best music of their career. That I've heard. The new Hum record is amazing. John is Davis good. and the Leaves of Memory stuff is amazing. The last couple Swerve Driver records have been amazing. The Failure records that have come out have been great. Um, so I don't feel like there's a like a, a gap in terms of material. It's just how are these artists being... Where's the algorithm for them? You know what the algorithm well, is right. for pop music. Where's the algorithm Sim- for simply, those Simply bands? put... It's it's really it's really simple because uh, I remember reading an article and or so, uh, and it, I mean they used Madonna as an example because she still sells a lot of records and all of that stuff. But um, like, why doesn't radio play her? Okay, and, and this is going to go for you know um, and failure and all of that stuff. And and it's it basically boils down to two words: they're old. Yeah. And and they don't think that their target demographic wants to hear somebody older than them playing music that they <gasps> might like. Yeah. It's yeah, but I will say like it's still as a, you know, even no matter how old you are, if you have an audience like you can tour and, and yeah. do it. Like, I mean, look at Nick Cave or someone like that. I mean, it's right. like, it yeah. gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like... Yeah. Afghan wigs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just well, not, they, no commercial success, but still, I mean. Loyal, still, loyal followers. Yeah. That's it's all like, you need. That's, that's all you need. So it's probably better that way anyway. Well, I mean, it, well, Aaron, you can, you can attest for that in Boston, correct? I yeah. mean, I mean, what, 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 you don't play as often as you used to, but when you do, it's a, it's a thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I could play four places, and people show up at those four places. So yeah, it's great. And that's and, not a bad thing to have. No, it's not. Dude, right. tell me secret. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what 
it is. <laughs> well, well, from a fan perspective, fan of Aaron's perspective, it, I mean, the, the, the fact that, you know, his band Sheila Divine is still semi-active at the very least. Is that a true assessment? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, I mean, they'll, they'll release something every now and again, and, and so they, they'll keep the public interest, at least in Boston. I mean, I don't know. I mean, did, when was the last time you, like, left New England or, or was called to leave New England? Uh, well, I mean, we still do like New York and Buffalo, and then I go to Europe twice a year. Okay. So, yeah. Well, so we have to ask you, um, on topic, the last record had a song called Kurt Cobain. What's, what's the story? How'd you, how'd you rate that? And it's a good question. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just started, it just came into my head and I wrote it. I wrote the song in like 15 minutes. So. And what would he be doing now if he were well, still alive? Well, in the song, he'd be on Twitter being a douche. <laughs> well, he'd, he'd be a total douche. I mean, I mean, like Chris Novoselic this Chris Novoselic this year praised Trump for his law and order speech. Kurt Cobain would find some way to be a complete douche in the media. I mean, it, it, and, and like with the caveat that the media makes douches out of normal people, but still, like he'd be. Yep. Would he have voted for Gary Johnson in 2016? Uh, just <laughs> like, just <laughs> like Chris Novoselic, uh, Jill yeah. Stein. He would have oh, been. Uh, he yeah, had to be different from Chris Novoselic. Oh would yeah, he would have totally gone for Jill Stein. <laughs> I'm telling you, he'd be on the Grammys doing like a duet with like Celine Dion or something. Yep. <laughs> I, I blame. I blame the head injury from him throwing his bass in the air. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, yes residual effect i mean mm. honestly if i think i think if we still had kurt cobain that at this point that he would be churning out like adult contemporary mid-tempo pop songs would he or would he have gone the nick cave route where he would you know form a band form a, a band like kurt kurt and the killers or something like that when he would have done you know wildly different solo stuff the way that like cave left you know the birthday party yeah. Or he, he could have just had the sort of ideal, to me, the the best way that Kurt could have ended up is the way that Trent Reznor has ended up, where he's maintained yes. critical yeah. acclaim and popular respect. Uh, neither one has diminished the other. And he's, yeah, he's a behemoth in the industry. That well, like Pearl Jam, him. you know? Yeah. I feel like we're lucky, though, because, I mean, what what we were left with that unplugged record is actually my favorite Nirvana record. Um, and I think it, 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 I mean, this has been discussed over and over again that it, you know, could have, it was an indication of kind of where he was at. Sure, it was like requested in, in part of the format of that show. But I can't think of a, I mean, you know, it's a tragedy that he's not here and, and the way he died is absolutely um, horrific and sad and, and whether you believe he killed himself or not or whatever, like he's dead, right? And so, but to, but to have a short legacy, but that maybe be the final 
you know, I mean, there's all the, the box sets and all this other stuff too, but um, the last sort of living document, I guess, um, I think it's very, uh, it's, it's almost touching, you know, like they kind of went out in this sort of like quiet, elegant way and they didn't, you know, um, crash and burn like, I mean, I don't know what the fuck that new Pearl Jam record is. I mean, it's fine. You yeah, know? The, the the legacy is is made further pristine by its brevity. Right. And, and I think that that final bow, you know, with with the unplugged record, um, is 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 just such a unplanned but beautiful, you know, part of their history. So two things. I wonder if he would have had the same kind of legacy that somebody like Mark Lanigan has had where he's had his ups and downs and reinvented himself. And it looks like he's come out the other side. And he and Lanigan were really good friends. In fact, I believe Lanigan might've been the one of the guys looking for him when they, they were still not sure where he was, but he had committed suicide. And I think the other thing is maybe, you know, with that unplugged record that, you know, he covers Bowie and maybe that is um, something about his legacy is, is the way that you know, Bowie had, had reinvented himself over and over again. And we might have seen a career like that, where it was kind of the, you know, young rebel making a noise, you know, with his five years and then uh, reinventing himself into something different and then reinventing himself into something different and then reinventing himself into something different. Yeah, reinvention is the key, like doing that in a way that doesn't uh, totally alienate all your fans, but continues to keep you fresh and not like, a parody of yourself and could he have done that i don't know yeah mm. well on that note <laughs> no nah, it would have been like I, I think what aaron's describing is more like axel rose <laughs> who has turned out to be pretty woke let's be true honest. let's be honest he's a he's a better twitter follower uh follow than um chris novacella you know that the, the story about Guns N' Roses right before before Nirvana hit was they wanted them to put out two records because they thought somebody in that band was going to die, and so they had DGC had extended their promo period focusing on GNR right up to to that that fall of '91, and as we were talking about in the chat, the Galactic Cowboys was a band that they were supposed to be pushing next, and then Nirvana hits. Hmm. But it's amazing. All of the GNR guys are still around, and most of them seem infinitely more sane and more stable than however many of, of unfortunately, the, the grunge guys we have lost to yeah. drugs and self-destruction and who yeah. knows what. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. All right, Tim. Well, five, 500 more. <laughs> are you in? Yeah, I guess. Wait, Wait I mean, it's some more cutty card. I see. I see you guys in July 2030. <laughs> <laughs> see you all did then. You, Let's do it. Did again. you just do the math? <laughs> you just I mean, do really the math. Did, I think I did it wrong. I think I did it wrong. Well, we started in 2011, and it, so it took us nine and a half years to get to 500. This is yeah. Texas. I should have taken 20 weeks off. I took two weeks off. Uh, and uh, episode of 1000 will be. Will be what? Are we gonna do um, Hootie? Oh, or are we gonna do Pearl Jam? Fifty-one fifty, probably. 
<laughs> but it, but to answer to answer Marissa's question, I actually went on a little like rant on the Patreon page. I voted for Santana. <laughs> I mean, we could still get to it. It's not that you know all those albums are still albums that people can pick yeah. with their Patreon uh, uh, selections. I just, I mean, I'll I'll just note it. Uh, Would you pull Marissa? Told me- Google tells me that 500 weeks from today is March 7th, 2030. Oh, nice. <laughs> March 7th, 2030. Put it on the, put it on the calendar, Tim. Well, we'll Bang. be on Mars by then, Jay. Oh, true. Yeah, true. So there's going to be a little bit of a lag, but we'll be able to, we'll, we'll be able to record that. <laughs> we'll figure it out. I'll be so on, I voted, I'll be on I voted Aero, for Metallica. So be on, uh, you vo- yeah. Who voted for Metallica? It's Eric. Eric. I voted for Metallica. Marissa? Right. I voted for Matchbox 20. There you go. Because wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm the contrarian right. of the Somebody bunch. Somebody voted for who? Uh, who got me. a lot of votes? That was me. Scott? <laughs> you voted. Yeah, yeah. I'm the, I'm got the, I'm the contrarian. I should have known. <laughs> uh, I left a comment. Y'all can. I mean, see I just said. Around. I just thought. I just thought. Never mind. I mean, as great of an album as it as it was, it's been it's been covered and covered and covered. And yep. Covered. Not like this. Not yeah, it hasn't been covered idea. by this a bunch the right of pick. Not like this. Seven. Definitely this not. This was the right pick for this episode. <laughs> uh, well, we, we do I need mean, to thank all the po- folks who um, commented: Gary Moran, Keith Badge, Jeremy Amen, Tara Cook, um, John Seaman, David Gorgos, Matt Gorey, Willie Dillon, Jeff Loney, Aaron, Steve Musinski, Kyle Bittner. Darren Lehman, Richard Waterman, Mike Bond, uh, Darren Leach, all the Darrens, and of course, all the folks who uh, joined us for this very special episode of Hollywood Squares that we're playing here tonight. Um, This would be, now that we've gone over the two hour mark, uh, we should probably consider wrapping this up. Uh, I do want to remind everyone who's listening to the recorded version that uh, you can, in case you got this far and you didn't know this, you can go to one and a half speed to get through this a little bit quicker. (laughs) (laughs) It should have said that up front, and I'm sorry. Uh, Maybe I'll plug it in. But uh, Patreon... One and a half speed! (laughs) Exactly. Jay, we should record it at one and a half speed and then see how fast people can get through it. We can make this podcast back to five minutes. You know, like we used to do it back in the day. Um, ah. Patreon, uh, Box Newsletter, digmeoutpodcast.com. Those are all the places to uh, check us out. I need to thank Marissa, Aaron, Johnny, Eric, Wit, Phil, Ryan, Chip, Scott, and there were some other folks who were here like Gavin and Willie and others who, who had to drop out earlier. Thanks, everybody for hanging out on this Thursday evening. Uh, That's it. 500 episodes in the books. I guess we'll be back next week to do another one. Woo! (laughs) Woo! All right. We're out. We'll be back next week already with another episode of Dig Me Out.